3: The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa, and I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoro, and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land as enshrined into Tiriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. Today, I've got the pleasure of bringing you an episode from a project from one of my very favorite creators, Gretchen Miller. In this first episode of a four-part series, you'll dive into the climate crisis and how it's playing out locally and across the globe. You'll be taken from the Birirung River in southern Australia to the Mongolian steppe and to visit the shearwaters feasting on plastic on Lord Howe Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I now hand you over to the very capable hands of Gretchen Miller to carry you through the rest of this episode. And I highly advise checking out the rest of the At Risk in the Climate Crisis series available from climactic.fm just by clicking on At Risk in the Climate Crisis. Enjoy.
0: You can look at that as a model and say, look, if we don't deal with the climate more effectively and if we think about the way wetlands will dry up and the impact on ecologies, that lower Bera is a good example of what you end up with, which is the loss of species and the loss of habitat and the loss of Indigenous connection to country.
1: Professor Tony Birch there. Hello and welcome to At Risk in the Climate Crisis. I'm Gretchen Miller and with Tony, today we're going to the lower reaches of the Birrarung River in Melbourne as we dive into the risky ways the environmental crisis is playing out for that river. For shearwaters too on Lord Howe Island and for the dwellers of the Mongolian steppe. I'm recording on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Through various lenses, the At Risk podcast series sets out to examine the ways in which humans are embedded in the whole climate catastrophe, as we hesitate on the edge of extinction to take the necessary critical and custodial action. How do we learn to live within a world that it seems is constantly at risk? What's at risk? Whose risks matter? And how do we proceed from here? And as we focus in this episode on the felt experience of loss and of care, we have three more guests for you. Dr Cameron Muir takes us to Lord Howe Island, where the young Shearwater chicks are fed on plastic. It's a shadow place.
4: The places that we draw resources from or send our waste, we sort of outsource all the disorder and change and destruction to these places so that we have these you know, nice privileged places, our homes and, and in the cities and, and so forth. And so I've been really interested in trying to understand what goes on in these places and how people live with them because they're not abandoned. There are still people who have to deal with this constant change and disorder.
1: With Cameron, ethnographic researcher and filmmaker Dr. Natasha Fine talks about her work in Mongolia, where the crisis is reflected in drought
5: and devastating winters known as zud. I think some some herders would know about climate change, but then there's other. They often have a pluralistic kind of attitude towards things, and it will also be attributed to other factors like the power of the surrounding entities in the landscape and whether these entities are angry with the way they're going about things. So if you hunt too many of the marmots, the land deity may then bring plague upon people as retribution. So because there's such extreme climatic conditions, there's a real respect for the power of the weather and nature. And we have
1: Professor Nigel Clark from Lancaster University's Environment Centre.
2: It's really important to realise that every different people, culture, collective has their own way of understanding what the earth can do and what we can do to the earth. So the really tricky thing, I think, is, is trying to find some way of not losing that sense of the earth operating as a whole, but not turning that story into a a kind of singular, monolithic narrative.
1: As we travel between various localities in this episode, we'll also be thinking about some of the precedents of contemporary climate anxiety and ways to come to terms with endangerment and how to think about the generations to come. But let's start back at the Birrarung.
0: I'm Tony Birch. I live in Melbourne and I'm a a writer and historian. So until a year ago, I worked in academia for about 25 years. I'm also a fiction writer and essayist and a poet. And I work also as an activist. And a lot of my research in recent years has been involved in climate action work and issues around protection of Aboriginal country.
1: I wonder what you observe around you from this country, about the climate crisis, you know, in terms of the human and the other than human, the little changes, the big changes? What
0: do you see? Well, it's interesting. That's a really important question so that in my section of the river you wouldn't notice any change on a day-to-day basis in the sense that it's only when you would get these dramatic periods of drought where obviously you'll, you'll notice much lower water levels along the river, which, of course, will have an impact on plant and and fish life in particular. But they're like the extremes. And what we know about climate is that change is sometimes very subtle and it's not easily identifiable. You have to look over the long period. But having said that, Gretchen, one of my interests is to look at the area of what we call the lower Rung where the, the Yarra River meets Hobson's Bay and then Port Phillip Bay and why that's an important site to write about, to think about and to remind people about. It's a section of the river that has been altered and undergone change since invasion that had a really devastating effect on plant and non-human life. For instance, you know, if you go down to what might be called the Westgate area of Melbourne under the Westgate Bridge, that was a remarkable wetland before European occupation. It was an area that sustained a lot of bird and plant life, but particularly bird life migratory birds from the Northern Hemisphere. Because of the way that that waterway has changed and the loss of the wetlands, those birds don't come up to that section of the river anymore. They go much more down to the Ballarine Peninsula, which is toward the Port Phillip Heads. But the, the points to note with that is that that means historically the loss of totemic relationships between local Indigenous landowners and particular bird species because they no longer nest on the country that they did for thousands of years, which has an impact on people spiritually as well as on the ecology but you can look at that section of the river and, and say to people, this is a model of the sort of change we don't want. We can see this model, and even though it's it's literally man-made in the sense that that river was governed and dammed and narrowed and built on and you know, so-called recovered land. So yeah, people are spending a lot of money building on landscapes that are, one, immediately devastated, and two, will be, further devastated in the medium to long term, including probably the, the loss of the mansions that they're actually building now.
1: On the far side of the world, living quite differently to Tony Birch's Melburnians, are those who dwell on the vast Mongolian steppe. Most of the buildings in the countryside are constructed to be easily relocated. There's a deeply reciprocal relationship between humans, herd animals and the landscape which you're hearing now. Mongolian horses, sheep, camels, yaks and goats, along with their herders are face to face with the imminent outcomes of the climate crisis.
5: So I'm Natasha Fine and I am part of the Mongolia Institute which is within the College of Asia in the Pacific at the Australian National University. And currently I'm doing a research project on Mongolian medicine and the transfer of knowledge surrounding medicine amongst the herding community and their herd animals.
1: Can you paint uh, the environmental picture of the Mongolian steppes?
5: It gets below zero for eight months a year and the average temperature is minus 28 degrees Celsius and so it's very cold, dry and arid climate. And then in the summer, probably the average temperature would be about around 22, 24 degrees, but in the desert it can get up to 40, 45 degrees. As Natasha explains, in
1: winter it's too cold even for snow. That comes in the spring. Winter is for hibernating and the shelters called yurts keep families warm under three layers of felt. Animals will be brought in to give birth if the weather is particularly brutal. In the summer, the felt is cast off and everything becomes more mobile.
5: Yeah, it's sort of a very different way of engaging with the animals and often the horses or the cattle will decide, oh, there's not enough food here, we'll go and graze somewhere else. And then the herders actually follow them with the encampment. They'll they'll go, right, we need to move because the herd's moving. Yeah, so fat is very important. When they're greeting one another, they'll say, are your animals fat and healthy? And so as soon as the spring growth comes through, the animals will be eating and they have about four months' sort of span of time where they have to be able to fatten up and grow strong and healthy. A drought in the
1: summer means the grass doesn't grow to fatten the animals and then there's nothing to eat over winter. For three years over the turn of the millennium, there were
5: terrible conditions in Mongolia. And then that meant that the following winter, they experienced this zud, which is when the snow hardens and becomes a sort of ice layer, and the uh, herd animals can't pour through to the fodder beneath. And so it's sort of this accumulation of events where there's the dryness and the grass not growing properly, and then no nothing for the animals to eat in winter, and then they just starve and die. And so one Dzud, I think it was 2000, 2001, 10 million animals died.
1: The Dzud is a term for a particularly harsh season, and it reflects not only the geophysical forces like the weather, but also the impact on the animals and the herders. Everything is intimately connected.
5: It essentially means a bad weather event But it doesn't only mean that, it means the death of the animals as well. So it's sort of combining a natural disaster with the sociological consequences of that. And the Mongolians divide different kinds of zud. You know, it's like having different kinds of snow. So there's white zud, and there's black zud, and there's water zud. And so there's, yeah, all different... Names for zod. So it's a word that
1: describes not just the weather, but the consequences of the weather. Yeah. So for many of us, especially in developed countries, we're feeling climate change, but we're still going about our lives. These people aren't, right? They're they're in the thick of the great acceleration.
5: They did experience zod previously, but more infrequently. So you get the zod every, say, seven years, and then that would allow more time to recover. But if you get this kind of phenomenon more frequently, then there's not the ability to be resilient and bounce back because you need some time for those that herd animals that did survive to reproduce more to then build it up.
1: The climate crisis and its thresholds impact differently around the globe. On Lord Howe Island, off the coast of New South Wales, humans and shearwaters or mutton birds interact when scientists come to visit to map the intimate effects of the Anthropocene.
4: Yeah, I'm Cameron Muir. I'm a writer and historian, and I'm about to start a, a new project at University of Western Australia with Andrea Gaynor on the shadow places of the Anthropocene. These places that have been neglected and marginalised and not thought about often.
1: So we have shadow places, but we also have shadow beings as well, these living beings that are marked for death, basically.
4: I guess they are a shadow species. Many people know the, the species of shearwater water that is sort of in their millions along the east coast of Australia and down Tasmania.
1: Well, it fed the convicts and, and so on, didn't it?
4: It did, and it was also a really important part of Aboriginal culture and Maori culture to have these mutton birding feasts. But on Lord Howe Island, I think there's a population of about 40,000 and it's declining of the fleshfoot shearwaters. They're a separate species to the mainland one, and they only, pretty much, only breed on Lord Howe Island. You know, after they're born in a burrow and fly out, they. <laughs> They live in the air for like five years. They don't come back to ground for five years. And when they come back to breed, they go back to the, usually the same burrow or within you know, a metre of the burrow it was born in. And the most sort of affecting experience for me was probably working on Lord Howe Island following ecologist Jennifer Lavers and her team who were studying fleshfoot shearwaters who were slowly feeding their chicks to death with plastic To think that something we use for convenience, like plastic is amazing, but, you know, it is just for human convenience in many ways. And our sort of rubbish, the leftover bits, are the bits that are disrupting these thousand-year, million-year generations of, of care and, you know, animal lives. And it was really, really affecting experiences. We get up at dawn to collect the chicks off the beach that were too weak to fly out into the ocean and then the researchers would bring them back to the lab on the island and and dissect them and they just pull out piece after piece of plastic. These are birds that have been nurtured for for three months in their burrow by their parents and they go to take their first flight and can't.
1: And what you've been hearing here with Cameron is the sound of those flesh-footed shearwaters on Lord Howe Island. I've often heard people say, as a form of comfort, okay, the other than human world will go on, it will evolve, you know, we'll have a population um, implosion as humans, but the earth will create new remarkable beings in our absence. Is that comforting to you? What do you feel about that? (laughs) I'm not sure it is a comfort to me. I long for these creatures to keep their place. These, these already remarkable beings to keep their place.
4: Yeah, it's not a comfort to me. like I know researchers would point to like you know the sudden proliferation of life after mass extinction events, but we're responsible for the suffering that happens to create that mass extinction event where <laughs> it's a different sort of situation where we're conscious of what we're doing and there's an ethical consideration about all the suffering we cause in the meantime like to humans as well. And to other species to cause so much loss. I, it's not a much comfort that, you know, sometime millions of years away, there will be another flourishing of life. Yeah, it's really important to <laughs> focus on the ethics of what we're doing now.
1: Planetary systems have long had a habit of instability and humans have lived precariously amongst this. Towards the end of this episode, we consider the nature of learnings we might adopt from that lived experience. But in the state of anthropogenic forcing we currently inhabit, we often forget to consider these previous adaptations. This forgetting began in the 18th century, when Europeans first started to think about the notion of human will, independent from a godly plan, and they separated themselves from the earth.
2: Okay, I'm Nigel Clark. I'm originally from Aotearoa, New Zealand, as you may have guessed from the accent. I've been in the UK for just over 20 years, and I teach at Lancaster University, I'm currently in a, in geography, but teaching in an environmental studies big kind of centre. I was trained as a sociologist.
1: The philosopher Immanuel Kant has popped up in your writing more than once, and he agonised over the precarious nature of the Earth's larger processes. How is his angst of the 18th century relevant today? Because the risks that he was feeling and sensing seem quite humble in comparison to our situation.
2: Well, I I think that what Kant was getting on to in the 18th century was just really the first glimpse of a planet that was capable of really transforming itself. So he's rising in the mid-18th century all the way through to the late 18th century One of the things that happened when he was just a youngster, he was in his his sort of early, mid-20s, the Lisbon earthquake, 1755, it was an earthquake followed by a tsunami, followed by a fire that basically trashed the whole city of of Lisbon. It impacted a lot of other places, but Europeans were obviously most concerned with a a European city. And I think this was a bit of a shock for, for Kant because he was just starting to get his head around this idea of a, a human subject who was independent, self-legislating, could do things that God wasn't directing, that wasn't pulling the strings. And I think that event, the Lisbon earthquake, the destruction of the city of of Lisbon, really hit him hard. And I think a lot of the rest of his generation, it hit them hard. The idea that a, a city could just be pretty much wiped off the face of the map. And I think it hit Europeans at a at a kind of delicate time, at a time when they were already anxious about what kinds of subjects, what kinds of, of thinking beings they were. But there's something else happening there, I think, that, that's also important, and it's important to us in the present thinking about you know, climate change, the, the Anthropocene, is that those Europeans were doing a lot of kind of digging into the surface of the earth. They were quarrying and mining and doing things like that. They were beginning to discover all these layers, these kind of strata, and some of these layers having, you know, animals, organisms, plants that, had, that were no longer around. So they were starting to get this sense that there had been other worlds before that had been in some way wiped out. And I think all of this made a certain kind of, you know, European scholar, made them quite anxious. And we tend to think about Europeans in the 18th century as being confident going places, knowing what they were all about, but I think that they were also quite anxious about some of the things that they were discovering. So anxious that no one much talked about this for almost two centuries, and it's not until very recently we've really come back to this question of an earth that might become otherwise. So they talked about revolutions of the earth back in the 18th century, and really since then there has been this grappling with the sense that the earth has and last a lot longer than, than people thought, but also this sense that that earth is a dynamic or changeable earth. But somehow in the 19th century, with the rise of you know, Darwinian evolution, deep time became a way of slowing things right, right down. So when we cause trouble, we're really layering it in to the transformations, the dynamism that, that belongs to the earth itself. So with climate change, we couldn't actually trigger a climate tipping point unless tipping points actually already existed in the way that the Earth's climate operates. And we
1: discuss more about tipping points and thresholds in our episodes, Ditching Denialism and techno scientific Interventions. Okay, so as you've pointed out, we know there are cultures who aren't actually responsible for this era of plastic and concrete that we're now calling the Anthropocene. While there's planetary multiplicity, there's also... Human multiplicity, socially, politically, culturally, and yet we're all thrown together with this one enormous existential risk. Australians, New Zealanders, every kind of English over there on the other side of the globe where you are, on another continent, the Mongolian steppe herders, as we're discussing in this podcast, and in the middle of the ocean on a tiny island, the seabirds feeding their young plastic that we've been talking about with Cameron Muir. And all of us are speaking such different languages. What is the risky paradox of this anthropocentrically dubbed Anthropocene?
2: Yeah, these are these are really tricky questions. And for me, one of the hardest things to do, and this is really the task that Bron Szynski and I set ourselves in the Planetary Social Thought Book that we just finished was how can you think through and with the Earth and all the things the Earth is capable of doing without turning it into a single story that everybody else has to go along with? And this has been one of the big critiques that's been fired back at the idea of the Anthropocene.
1: One thing is for sure, though, there are thresholds and we don't know about them until we step over them. Can you talk to the idea of thresholds?
2: I think the threshold is really important, especially when we think about what it actually means to inhabit that threshold or to inhabit that moment of passing through some transition between a world we're more or less familiar with and one we're very, very unfamiliar with. One of the things within the Anthropocene science and the climate science itself that they're encouraging us to think in terms, not of a a single one big or mighty threshold, but to think in terms of, various tipping elements. So a number of different kind of thresholds in different parts of the Earth system, which can sometimes come together, converge, turn into a kind of a cascading change, but they're trying to get us away from, I think, thinking about that one big almighty change and to think in terms more of more localized, more regionalized thresholds,
1: In Mongolia, a moment of transition might be observed in the way diseases with which Mongolians have coexisted could get out of hand. The Siberian marmot carries the plague, and as herders love to eat marmot to supplement their diet, plague can get transmitted in the preparation of the food, as well as by the fleas, which pass it from marmot to human.
5: So that interrelationship between marmots, fleas and the plague and humans, was already in place three thousand eight hundred to 4,000 years ago. So we've been living with the plague for a long time as humans, but occasionally when certain circumstances collide, then it can become an outbreak. And that would be the worry with climate changes because everything's changing so rapidly. The temperature's already risen by one degree in Mongolia, but could rise by five degrees even by the end of the century. If the ecology gets out of balance, then you could have these major plagues emerging. Even anthrax is a concern. Anthrax is a problem in Mongolia and because it can stay in the soil for long periods of time. And in Mongolia, there's a sort of less of a divide between the domestic stock and the wild animals. And there's these wild populations of gazelle that can then give the anthrax to cattle that graze on the same grasses and the same soil, and then the humans get it.
1: Back in Australia, one such threshold might be observed in the increasingly frequent mass movement of soil in the form of dust storms.
4: In the 1980s, I think it was the local Lions Club or Rotary Club started um, this campaign. It was a bit like a tourist campaign to take Dubbo's dusty, rough image and turn it around into something it could try and celebrate like a type of larrikin type advertising campaign where you could buy this jar of Dubbo dust, which, you know, it says on the label also known as cobar Rain, because cobar is further west and the red soil would blow in from those uh, sort of denuded places. And I think it was fairly innocent then. It was something to sort of make a, a joke about, the Dubbo dust. And now I think it's far more fraught there have been a number of large dust storms blacking out the sky in recent in the, in the last ten years, and people are definitely connecting that, whether they're in the towns or or landholders, they're connecting that to the severe droughts we've had, and then and in turn to climate change. Interviewing landholders ten years ago, many would get out their weather books and say, "Look, these are just natural changes." But now it's very different when you talk to them. There's so many more who say, "Okay, I'm living the change. These changes have climate change. I'm experiencing climate change. And, you know, we need to know how to deal with it.
1: How to deal with it. Indeed. Nigel Clark.
4: Particularly
2: Indigenous people, people who've lived in place for a long, long time, they have their own understanding of thresholds. They have their own understanding of limits that you shouldn't step over, always leaving some excess in the system. I don't think you you ever find Indigenous people, people who've lived in a place for a long, long time, using up every single resource that's available. They always leave something behind. So in a way, I think all those people are understanding that there are thresholds in ecosystems, in the physical world. But something else that they're doing is that they're also negotiating those thresholds. They're not just kind of like passively stepping back. They're aware that changes can happen, but they're also aware that they can intervene. I'm fascinated by by fire use, cultural burning, Indigenous Australians and the way that they actually modify ecosystems, the way that they actually modulate risks, you know, through burning, through, through deliberate kind of use of fire you could think of that as being a kind of an, an intervention in thresholds. So by using fire, by using many small, well-timed, well-placed fires, you can really um, lower the risk of the big, huge runaway fires. So in that sense, it is a kind of a, an engaging, manipulating or working with these thresholds. So I think that's important also to think that we're not just on the receiving end, that we can also, if we're careful, we can experiment, we can find out, we can improvise and, you know, find ways of actually engaging with some of these changes, these these transformations.
1: I mean, it's big though, isn't it? As we discuss in our episode on techno science, now our experiments have global impacts too and, yeah, they're quite a different beast.
2: These are, are really interesting questions. I think it's, it's important not to, to simply draw a line and say that, that Western high tech, techno scientific experiments have got it all wrong, whereas indigenous or more traditional experimentation, improvisation has got it right. But I think that there's got to be something about learning from your mistakes and also learning from your successes. That the longer you've had to do that and the more you've had to kind of reflect on that, it really does make a, a big difference.
1: So as academics, writers, activists and citizens, we know that sharing stories is one way to learn from the past how to make our way into the future. How can we use stories to help us grasp the global impacts of something that's so big we can't comprehend it all at once, if we can comprehend it at all? How do we network the local experience into the global phenomenon and communicate our grief, our courage and our desire for change? How do we mobilise? Nigel Clark suggests we mobilise through addressing the planetary context of the predicament.
2: Yeah, I think... One of the things, again, in Western thought, in Western social thought, we've been coming to terms with in the last few decades is the idea of a kind of self-endangerment that we have made our world, our planet, much more dangerous than it used to be. So you get people like Ulrich Beck bringing this idea of risk, a certain sort of human triggered hazard. He's trying to bring that into the, the centre of social thought, which I think is a, is a really good thing. He's, he's looking at things like Bhopal accident, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and he's saying this is a new kind of hazard, a new kind of human-made hazard. And we really have to get our heads around this and put this centre stage. That's really what ecological thought, environmental thought has been saying, you know, at least since the 1960s. We need to put center stage and focus on these problems, these troubles that we are causing for ourselves. I think the really important thing is to layer that in to the bigger picture, which is planet and Earth, which is dynamic. I mean this is the this is probably the the most dynamic planet in our solar system. It's got the most active plate tectonics. We wouldn't exist, we wouldn't have become who we are probably life wouldn't have emerged on a planet that was more stable. So really, we need to think through the fact that the Earth itself goes through its own catastrophes, it goes through its own volatile moments, its own kind of transformation. So important though the notion of ecological crisis is, and especially important to bring it into the social sciences, we weren't always that concerned with ecology. That's important, but we really need to keep in mind that that's framed in this larger set of things, much, much larger set of things going on, happening to the planet itself, the things that the planet is actually generating. So when we cause trouble, we're really layering it into the transformations, the dynamism that that belongs to the Earth itself. So with climate change, we couldn't actually trigger a climate tipping point unless tipping points actually already existed in the way that the Earth's climate operates.
1: And there's recognition of that layering to be found in cultures like that of the Mongolian steppe. Natasha Fine. So
5: if you don't treat the land or the herd animals or things with respect, and it's that Buddhist philosophy too, that there will be karma or kind of retribution for not treating things well. And so they talk about tingit which is means the sky or the weather and also the heavens it's like a deity they'll talk about that with great respect I'll give an example I was going out on the grassland to, with the matriarch of a herding family and we were going to look for medicinal plants and then she hadn't been out on the grassland for a while because sometimes the women get kind of stuck in the encampment and don't get to go out so much, but she was looking at the grassland and she was saying, this just looks really bad, because it was late summer. Usually that would be knee-high grass, and it's not. And she just said, oh, this is going to be a really bad winter. And then she's just, oh, no, 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 you know. And then when I got back to Australia, yeah, there was a really bad zood that year.
1: As we draw to a close, I ask our guests how it is that those, unlike the Mongolian step herders, those of us not thinking about our connections with the earth, are able to so comprehensively silo our lives. How so many of us in big cities manage to forget those smoke haze summers soon after the danger has passed. Natasha Fine says Mongolian herders and their animals offer useful perspectives for others as global heating accelerates.
5: If these herders are relying on the surrounding environment and the surrounding ecology, then they're going to be hugely impacted. But then on the other side, their ancestors have been living like this for thousands of years and they're very resilient and they know how to survive in these extreme temperatures and have applied... Knowledge over thousands of years, and so I think actually we can learn from their adaptive and resilient techniques for the people who are less reliant on other beings.
1: Nigel Clark says some of us need to get better at inhabiting perspectives different to our own, not only sentient perspectives, but geophysical ones as
2: well. I think it's a way that people who've inhabited difficult, demanding landscapes for a long, long time one of the ways they've done that is to be able to move their perspective between different species or between different parts of the ecosystems they're living in. And it's both a way of living through and dealing with crisis and catastrophe, but it's also a way through it because it, it multiplies your possibilities, it multiplies your perspectives, it multiplies the way of experiencing and living through various kinds of challenges. But it's also, I think it's a way too of, of dealing with grief and loss. So I think there's a lot we can learn from that way of seeing the world, but also Western science itself is moving in those directions. So I think there's really interesting possibilities of a convergence there about trying to imagine, think through, live with you know multiple perspectives So
1: how might the Indigenous matrix of memory relations with the earth be more broadly embraced? Tony Birch.
0: That's a big question, but if we think of long time history, that we also need really fundamental generational change that literally will take a generation and accept that, accept that we need to also think patiently. So one of the issues around... Indigenous understanding of country and ecologies is that, one, you have to take the long view, you have to have the long game, and two, that you have to have a holistic approach to your relationship with country or nature, to call the Western sense. And so that Leanne Simpson, who's a um, First Nations scholar in on Turtle Island in Canada, she talks about, and, and many other, by the way, First Nations scholars in North America talk about Yeah, you don't plan for the next generation, you plan for the next six generations. So what will this country look like in 100 years? And yeah, the the decisions we make now must have positive effect in the long term. So that's one thing we need to do. We need to also think about a holistic relationship to country. So you can't silo anything. Nothing can be separated out from anything else. But it's so ingrained, Tony that siloing. That's why I think that we need to talk about long-term change. It will never happen in the short term. It's about something basic though. I think that it's about allowing and encouraging thinking and encouraging thinking that opens people to new ideas and to fundamental changes. Like you talked about then about people forget very quickly the the situation of catastrophe that they might experience, say, through a bushfire or drought. I actually think it's not exclusive to, but that is a condition which is very common in in colonised countries. Colonialism has to operate on the basis of selective amnesia to justify itself, so that in relationship to the way that colonial violence has destroyed country in Australia, it it can't work or you can't sustain that myth unless you encourage and demand that people forget what happened yesterday. So you've got to encourage a way of thinking that is open and evolving. I think that if you had leadership in politics which articulated clearly the catastrophe we face and are dealing with now what we need to do to avoid or alleviate that catastrophe and hopefully in the long term change things around and reassure people that this is something like dealing with COVID that we would deal with as a community. Those people who are at the moment unable or unwilling or afraid to think about climate, I, th- I don't think it would be difficult to win people over because they do need the reassurance that this is something, a responsibility that we share. Now, That might sound naive, but I don't think it is. I think you can look at moments in political history, even in a country like Australia, where governments have acted effectively in moments of crisis and because you've had an ethical response to those issues that people have accepted the need to change.
1: Finally, Cameron and I speak about courage as we stand and face the unknown.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think definitely we can foster courage through the writing we do and our other art forms like audio for you. You mentioned hope before and I'm, I'm wary of, of hope and I don't like the way that some academics and many people in, in the public debate turn everything into a dualism between hope and despair as if people can only feel one or the other when people are really complex and they can feel both at the same time. So I think you can feel courage, grief hope all at once and these are all feeding into this desire to care to contribute to connect with people and to try and create better futures i guess so jennifer lavers who's a the ecologist who was on lord howe island who i followed for the story she often tweets and says in interviews don't have hope just act (laughs) just do something
1: The first three words of your co-authored introductory essay to your collection of essays living with the Anthropocene was, you're not alone. What did you mean by those words?
4: I guess we're trying to let people know that there are many others feeling the same way in response to the the changes that you could see in your own backyard or your, your local river or beach or seeing really distressing images of global change in social media and and on news sites and we just thought at a time when I guess many people probably felt divided and that politicians maybe at many levels weren't really listening that they're not facing this alone and that many people from all kinds of different backgrounds whether they're farmers or you know gardeners ecologists traditional owners they're all feeling similar ways, similar feelings in response to these changes that they might be experiencing them in different ways, but there are some things in common and that, you know, you don't have to face this alone.
1: Cameron Muir, Natasha Fine, Tony Birch and Nigel Clark, thanks so much to all our guests and to the team sound engineer Judy Rapley, production assistant Daniela Fulvey and editors and executive producers Josh Wodak and Jessica Weir. The show was written and produced by me Gretchen Miller. We've extended interviews for you with Tony Birch and Nigel Clark on your podcast service and three other discussion episodes on technoscientific interventions, Ditching denialism and on Indigenous leadership. Don't miss them. This episode of At Risk in the Climate Crisis is funded by the Seedbox, a reformers Environmental Humanities Collaboratory, and it's supported by the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. Theme music is Lickstick by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks again for your company. I'll see you next time.
0: Uh. Climactic Collective